Welcome to Doctorate, the podcast of PhD candidates in the humanities and the social sciences at the University of Vienna. This is the place for communication and discussion about issues surrounding us in the world of science. We address the what's, why's and how's of our work and invite researchers from different disciplines to explore topics and ideas they and we deeply care about. Welcome to the fourth episode of Doctorate and the last episode of this semester. This time we're going to do something a little bit different because so far we've been talking to early stage academics about the issues they and we are facing in the world of science. But today we're going to do a special episode, a showcase of what researchers here at the doctoral schools of Vienna are interested in. So what can you expect? Well, today, Bernd Christoph Ström is going to host an expert interview with research colleague and fellow from the Doctoral School of Historical and Cultural Studies, Mario Holzner. He's also the director of the Vienna Institute of International Economic Studies. Bernd and Mario are both experts on the Western Balkans, and they both share a deep interest in the region. So they will bring fresh perspectives in the field of their expertise to the table, namely the political history of the Western Balkan countries, and explore current points of interest. I've already heard a little bit of what you're going into here today. And this, dear listener, it's a treat for the mind. So brace yourself for an exciting episode in which this podcast becomes the platform for an expert interview. And welcome today's host, Band. Thank you, Rasmus. Welcome, everyone. As you heard it, today we have an interesting topic to talk about. The Western Balkans can be regarded as a region between self-determination and EU integration. The goal of today's episode is to dive into the region's past, to talk about current issues, and to dissect the prospects of the Western Balkans, especially in light of EU enlargement. We have invited a very special guest to talk about those topics, Mario Holzner. Mario is a keen and renowned expert about the Western Balkans. For over 20 years, he works as economist at the Vienna Institute of International Economic Studies, and since 2019, he is also the Institute's executive director. Mario already holds a PhD in economics and currently writes his second PhD thesis at the University of Vienna Doctoral School of Historical and Cultural Studies. Mario, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the Western Balkans. Thank you for the invitation. We have a tradition at this podcast. Uh, we ask our guests to bring and describe an item related to their work or research in each episode. So Mario, what have you brought us today? I have brought uh, a boarding pass, something that one doesn't see anymore that often. Um, I was invited to the 30-year anniversary conference of the National Bank of North Macedonia. And um, and uh, this boarding pass uh, is uh, with regard to the uh, flight from Skopje to Vienna. And uh, I think there are several informations coming with it. So on the one hand, um, it, it tells us that um, at least uh, local societies have declared uh, the pandemic to be over and again have uh, conferences on site. It also says something about accessibility of the Western Balkans. It's almost impossible to, to go, for instance, by a train uh, to Skopje from Vienna. So one needs to fly. And it also tells us about uh, the probably lack of um, digitalization uh, because you can't do an online check in, in North Macedonia, but you have to go to the airport, old school, and get your boarding pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is very difficult, you know, since the pandemic. Um, I also, you know, noticed that you are uh, fluent in Croatian. 
But your your mother tongue is German, though, right? Well, oh, both, maybe. both. Yeah, my 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 father is from Innsbruck and my mother from Zagreb, so I'm uh, a typical Viennese, I guess. Oh, great, great. So this is something we share actually, because uh, I actually grew up in Croatia, and um, yeah, very it's very good that you know you know Croatian, German, you know you have an in to the region. Absolutely, yeah? it's very helpful to to read also local newspapers. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Then um, let's dive into today's topic. Um, it is very difficult to talk about current issues in the Western Balkans without addressing the, the region's past in view of the violent dissolution of the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia. Um, this was, um, as you know, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional and multicultural federation, which included Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Slovenia. Um, from 1946 until 1980, it was ruled and held together by one man, Josip Broz Tito. Tito died in 1980. And only 11 years after his death, Yugoslavia collapsed. What followed were almost 10 years of wars and bloodshed in the region. Mario, can you explain the most pressing issues that led to the dissolution of uh, Yugoslavia? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a very loose federation um, held together by uh, a wartime hero uh, who also uh, Tito. was uh, Tito, who was uh, uh, also <laughs> in the end a dictator. Um, and with uh, the whole apparatus of, of a dictatorship, although compared to all the other uh, communist dictators in, in East and Southeast Europe, he was probably one of uh, the rather more benevolent mm -hmm. dictators. Mm -hmm. So the country was uh, fairly free. People were allowed to, to travel and leave the country whenever they want. But um, at the end of... Um, his rule, he didn't really um, organize uh, his legacy and um, was not able to, to really foster the state as, uh, as, as, a, as a more central state. So when, when overall uh, democratic movements started to evolve, um, on a political ground, um, the state started to Uh, to collapse. Basically, you had um, in the Northwest, particularly the uh, communist parties in Slovenia and Croatia uh, being ready to transform into some sort of reform uh, communist social democratic parties why, with, with uh, basically uh, the wish to, to have um, free elections mm. um, end of the 80s, early 90s while uh, this was uh, not really in the interest of uh, particularly the Serbian Communist Party. And so at the uh, last Congress of the League of Communists of Yugoslavia, uh, the whole thing really collapsed when um, the Serbian uh, delegation and their allies didn't allow basically the Slovenian and Croatian delegations to make any Uh, suggestions on the reforms of the country and that in a way was really the the starting point uh, of of the dissolution of Yugoslavia which in a way started hence much earlier than what we typically think yeah and this was the 14th congress of the league of communists in 1990 war started in 91 mm. 92 with uh, the declaration of independence of slovenia and then croatia and then bosnia yes so um was the breakup that led to the yugoslav wars of the 1990s in your opinion avoidable I think it was. Uh, I mean, on a pure abstract level, what Yugoslavia was really missing was a, um, we would today call it in, in EU jargon, uh, a fiscal capacity. Mm. So 
the Yugoslav state collected basically some tariffs and uh, that was one of the major bases to finance the army and foreign policy but that was basically it there was a central bank which was also common but that that was more or less it the republics had uh, really the fiscal power mm-hmm. and uh, each year they were deciding on redistribution of of uh, of uh, funds for the poorer regions and you know it's it's uh, difficult enough to redistribute uh, profits but it is really difficult to d- redistribute losses and with the oil price shocks also in mm-hmm. the 1970s the overall economic situation in the 80s deteriorated um, with the fall of the Soviet Union there was also uh, no reason for the United States to to finance Yugoslavia actually as a as a power against the Soviet Union interestingly so uh that was basically it i think uh, there was there was no coherence so you say that the lack of a fiscal union also contributed to the dissolution I think so and 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 this basically should uh, make us think about for instance the european union mm-hmm. uh, a lack of uh, a fiscal center in the european union just as similarly as as also in the austro-hungarian empire <coughs> is is really a problem for the existence of a more or less uh, loose federation or confederation of uh, of of states so uh, that was certainly a lack and then maybe there was still a way out uh, in 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 the early 90s when actually yugoslavia was already starting in a way negotiations with the european union and uh, one idea was that uh basically one one um changes yugoslavia into an even more looser federation but joins together the european union mm-hmm. and that would have been i think the the the, the in a way um positive outcome that could have been reached but uh, this apparently was not in the interest of of serbia at the time okay okay very interesting thank you um let's talk about current issues in the region starting with the well you can call it a political and constitutional crisis in Bosnia and Herzegovina um Bosnia's constitutional and institutional issues are currently often overlooked due to Russia's military invasion of Ukraine which is why i think we should address them here um the current crisis in Bosnia actually dates back to the adoption of the so-called Dayton agreement in 1995 this was a comprehensive peace treaty with an annex serving as Bosnia's constitution the Dayton agreement ended the Bosnian war in 1995 However, it also divided the country into two entities, a Croatian Muslim Joint Federation, the so-called Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and a Serb-dominated entity, the Republika Srpska. Until this day, Bosnia's constitution and electoral law have multiple issues. For example, in 2009, the European Court of Human Rights described Bosnia's electoral law as discriminatory because it excluded uh, Bosnia's Jewish and Roma communities from participating as candidates in the country's presidential elections. So Mario in your opinion what are the biggest problems or issues uh with Bosnia's constitution Well it was <coughs> basically a grand compromise uh the 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 Dayton agreement everyone knew that it is far from being perfect the hope was that um the state would then change its uh, constitution itself and so on but that obviously didn't really materialize Um the main issue is that the whole agreement is based on the idea of three constitutional 
nations that together uh, um, built uh, up um, the Bosnian state with uh, these divisions that you were mentioning. Uh, and, and that obviously is incompatible with the civic idea of, um, of statehood that a modern state should embrace uh, and that is obviously the problem of of those who are who neither feel to be uh, Serbs, uh, Bosniaks or Croats. Now there are different opinions. On the one hand clearly Bosnia is a state that doesn't work and function very well but there is also another opinion that given the horrors of, um, of the war actually uh, Bosnia works surprisingly well. That is also one way to look at it. So it's and not a failed state, so, basically. So it's I mean, it works. It, it even <laughs> it, it, maybe it's a working failed state. Oh, okay. we, we need to okay. find, uh, in a way, some kind of maybe a new definition of it. And I mean, it, it is true if you if you go to Sarajevo, if you go to, to Bihać, if you um, taste excellent uh, Bosnian food and so on, you know, and have a nice coffee around in Bascharsia, then... Mm -hmm. uh, It's, it's, it can be very nice life yeah, there as yeah, well. Yeah. Yes. Um, But it yeah. is true that the political situation is, 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 really, is really bad and um, it's difficult to, 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 to see a way out. I mean, I, I agree with you. There's a big difference between the urban and rural area in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Sarajevo, you know, there is like, there is no real segregation between the three most uh, distinctive ethnicities, you know, the Croats, Muslims, and, and, and the Orthodox Serbs. But on, in the rural area, You know, this is a, a different thing. I was invited uh, 15 years ago to a wedding in Gorni Vakuf, and uh, there I saw really the segregation of the ethnicities, the, the no, Muslim and yeah. Croat ethnicities, you know. No, also in the smaller towns and yes. so on, you have these schools that are separated and the one part being renovated, the other not. And so, I mean, it, it's, it's not nice. Yeah, the, 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 one, the one school, the one roof, two schools policy, mm. you know, where they divide education between ethnicities, yeah. big problem. So in your view, What can be done to consolidate Bosnia's divided society? Difficult. I mean, I, I would suggest really to, to have some sort of uh, Swiss solution, um, a, a complete cantonization of, of the country, basically let every valley have its own uh, canton. And uh, uh, I think that that would be uh, a way out possibly. Um, and and uh, But, but I don't see how, how this would really work out uh, with the uh, political leaders in the country. Uh, I think uh, what the country really needs is a solution that includes Croatia and Serbia, which also with regard to the Dayton Agreement are in a way guarantor powers to uh, the Bosnian Herzegovinian statehood, whether we like it or not. Um, and they have influence Uh, on their ethnic groups in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So together with the, the two big neighbor ca neighboring countries and the United States and the European Union, one should find uh, a solution of, uh, of a new constitution that would probably be the way out. And do you think that a reform of Bosnia's constitution is feasible in the near future? I mean, you have like the Croat parties, have their uh, ethnic uh, Croat parties in Bosnia, they have their own wishes, they want to establish there's talk to establish a third Croatian uh, uh, entity in Bosnia so well I don't I don't see that really coming but yeah. as I said if you if you uh, break it up to to dozens of small units which could be uh, mon mono-ethnic mm -hmm. more or less mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. maybe with some special rights for the bigger cities which are multi-ethnic 
um, that that could be uh, a way out. Okay, okay. So I think you know, talking about, Bos about Bosnia and Herzegovina, we should also talk about threats to Bosnia and Herzegovina statehood. For many years now, Bosnian Serb presidency member Milorad Dodik, who is practically the head of the Bosnian Serb entity, is calling for secession of the Republika Srpska entity from Bosnia. Um, in addition, Dodik aims to transfer Dodik and uh, Bosnian Serb policymakers uh, aim to transfer official decision-making competences from the Bosnian central state to the Republika Srpska entity, and thus increasing the Bosnian Serb entity's political autonomy. The international community, including the EU, is monitoring Dodik's actions with great concern, since the Serb entity's accession could potentially destabilize the Western Balkan region and lead to renewed armed conflict. So, Mario. Are those concerns justified? Is there a real danger of a renewed armed conflict uh, in case of secession? Or is there a danger of secession of the Republika Srpska? I, I don't really see that. <coughs> that would be extremely risky uh, of uh, Dodik and his uh, his uh, clique of, of, of politicians in Republika Srpska because purely from a um, strategic point of view, the, the biggest chunk of the Republika Srpska is really no good military position to defend itself, for instance, from a joint uh, Croatian-Bosniak um, response to such a secession. So I think from a, from a uh, military point of view, this is not feasible. From a uh, financial point of view, I think this is also not feasible. Republika Srpska is uh, very much indebted. Um, it is uh, a country with uh, or a kind of... Uh, country et, uh, entity of Bosnia and Herzegovina with uh, a very low level of economic activity. The basis uh, for um, seceding is, is very weak. It would um, mean even stronger support from Serbia and possibly Russia, also in financial terms, to, to, to make this um, uh, happen and, and uh, be a kind of success. So I, I don't see it. What about the European Union as an external actor? Are EU sanctions actually um, against policymakers such as Milorad Dodik viable options to ensure the preservation of Bosnia and Herzegovina? It, I don't know whether it's really a viable option, but it, it certainly is uh, something to, to punish him and, and, and his, his uh, clique. Uh, it, it won't make a huge difference, I think, but it, at least on a, on a symbolic level, it, it would uh, show a certain commitment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, are sanctions I mean, in view of uh, uh, Hungary? Actually, I mean, do you see that the European Union will impose sanctions eventually, that Hungary will come around and agree? Because they are the main country in the European Union blocking sanctions currently. Well, Hungary is in a, uh, in a worse situation than maybe a few months ago uh, since uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Uh, they lost their main uh, supporter in the European Union, Poland. As they have a divided opinion on on this on these issues, so it might be tough for Hungary to sustain uh, an an own policy also with regard to Republika Srpska. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned Russia, Russia's military invasion of U of Ukraine. So um, let's let's address Russia's um, influence in in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So this is another we can call it a destabilizing factor to Bosnia statehood. Um, I myself noticed that Russia tries to increase its geopolitical foothold in the Western Balkan region through the Bosnian Serb entity. Um, for example, through special gas procurement deal with the Republika Srpska entity and with excluding the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And they started this in 2014. 
yeah, with the annexation of Crimea, which is very interesting. Since 2021, Russia also refuses to recognize the appointment of Bosnia's new high representative, Christian Schmidt. The high representative, this is the highest authority in Bosnia-Herzegovina who is tasked to monitor the, the Dayton Agreement, the peace treaty. So how do you, how do, uh, you view Russia's influ influence on the Bosnian-Serb entity? Is Russia's influence on Bosnia something to worry about? Well, obviously that there is this influence and um, one can also worry about it, but overall Russian influence, uh, both in Republika Srpska as well as in Serbia, is very much limited to the energy sector. Mm -hmm. And uh, otherwise Russia is not investing uh, really that much into, into um, this ally. Um, Russia is basically trying uh, to make troubles for the West, uh, and but with with uh, means uh, which are uh, limited. Mm -hmm. um, good. Um, when talking about uh, Bosnia Herzegovina and the Western Balkans, I think it is also important to address the current issues in Serbia. Now talking about you know the Bosnian Serb uh, uh, um, entity, and Serbia has of course also influence on the Bosnian Serb entity. Um, as you know. Serbia officially applied for European Union membership in 2009 and the EU accession negotiations are currently ongoing. Um, Serbia should complete its negotiations by the end of 2025, theoretically, theoretically, <laughs> allowing it to join the EU by 2025. Uh, so how do you assess the status of Serbia's EU accession? Is it likely for Serbia to complete negotiations, let's say, by 2025? Well, even theoretically, I think it's almost impossible by now. Yeah. <coughs> but... Um, um, Serbia is in a in a difficult position. Uh, obviously, it is um, um, it is a bit unclear what really the end game is and what they really want. They want uh, they want uh, multiple. They have multiple goals which are not necessarily uh, possible to combine. So on the one hand, um, the Serbian president obviously would like to be the one who leads his nation into the European Union. At the same time, there is this idea of a Serbian world that uh, is partly incompatible with joining the European Union because uh, Serbia is expected to recognize uh, Kosovo de facto. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the same time, there are these historical ties with Russia, which... Uh, uh, majority of the population uh, likes uh, to um, to see uh, also somehow implemented at least on a symbolic level, and uh, at the same time, uh, Serbia is uh, one of the most important partners of China in in Europe. I mean, absolutely, as you said said it, uh, Serbia is still confronted with many issues hindering the country's EU accession. Um, as you said, Kosovo, um, the recognition of Kosovo's independence until 2008, Kosovo was part of Serbia. This is, of course, a major issue hindering Serbia's uh, the EU accession. In your view, how to solve Serbia's strained relations to Kosovo? Uh, will Serbia ever recognize Kosovo's independence? It's difficult to see how uh, any Serbian leader could really uh, recognize Kosovo's independence. Um, if any... Uh, leader could do it, then it would be probably one that is uh, really a nationalist, at least on the surface, uh, and who could dare to do so. Um, but probably only um, on, 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 on the paper, so to speak, on, on some sort of symbolic uh, level, Serbia probably should be allowed to um, nominally maybe uh, 
have uh, uh, Kosovo still uh, included in a, in a theoretical uh, future state, maybe. Or I, I was thinking about the, the situation that uh, uh, the Southern Tyrol, for instance, has in in Italy, and uh, there was in in after the Second World War there was a an agreement between between Austria and Italy, and. Uh, while it is clear that uh, Southern Tyrol is part of Italy, there is also um, part of the agreement says that Austria in a way is a, um, a, a power that uh, has the right to defend Southern Tyrol in some not that clearly defined situation of, of emergency or so. Mm -hmm. So I think some kind of a symbolic element like this could maybe be the way out uh, of, of this situation with, between Kosovo and Serbia. Mm -hmm. So there is already talk to um, on negotiations to establish like such a special status for the Serb ethnicity in Kosovo with the establishment of a community of Serb municipalities. They should be granted special rights, etc. Do you think that this is an option to you know for Serbia? Well, there, there are different options being discussed. One would be a split of the country. Uh, one could, uh, there, there is uh, this uh, Serbian controlled north of, of Kosovo, northern Mitrovica region. But actually, most Serbs in Kosovo live rather in the southern parts of, of, of Kosovo. One could even think of some sort of um, extraterritorial status for some of the Serbian um, churches and monasteries. You know, I mean, different options are on the table. It, it really needs um, some sort of, of a diplomatic uh, solution to this uh, arguably very difficult uh, situation. Okay. So you also mentioned uh, Russia's influence or the close relations to Serbia. It is of course no secret that Serbia has traditionally close ties to Russia. Uh, Serbia's President Vucic, who was currently re-elected, is I mean, I've, I've noticed this pursuing kind of a fence-sitting tactic in light of Russia's military invasion of, of, of Ukraine. So while Serbia condoned Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the UN General Assembly in March, the Serbian government until this day refuses to impose sanctions on Russia. Um, and President Vucic also said, I think it was a week ago, that Serbia would refrain from imposing sanctions against Russia as long as possible. So what is your view on Serbia's relations to Russia? Well, it's it's obviously difficult uh, more recently because um, uh, Russia uh, was arguing with uh, the case of Kosovo actually um, when it uh, when when it occupied uh, Crimea, yeah. and uh, interestingly, if you saw recently the Serbian tabloids, they were changing their position on on um, on President Putin, um, seeing him rather as a traitor. So, because because uh, Putin basically said that Kosovo should re be recognized as independent state because of Luhansk and Donetsk should also be granted recognition. Exactly, he yeah. wants to make this analogy, yes. mm -hmm. um, uh, and and in a way, uh, yeah, annoy the West uh, in, in in that respect. So, uh, yeah, it's it's difficult. At the same time, as I said, uh, Serbs still recognize uh, Russia as uh, their main ally on historical grounds. So, so it is not easy to 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 get rid of this legacy. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is that Serbia is also dependent on Russian energy imports, especially oil, natural gas. Um, what can the European Union, as an external actor, do to reduce Serbia's dependence on Russia? Well, I mean, <coughs> speaking also about uh, uh, potential further sanctions against Russia, I mean, 
it's easy for Serbia to say that they will not impose sanctions, but given that they are landlocked country and uh, pipelines and so on are going through other countries all around them, uh, they would indirectly be part of the sanctions regime anyway if the European Union um, would decide to to uh, impose a full-scale um, oil gas uh, sanctions on Russia. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's not so important whether Serbia officially sanctions Russia or not. What What about China? I mean, we had once a discussion where you said that China's influence in Serbia was even higher than Russia's. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, for China, Serbia is a very special uh, um, partner uh, and, and probably one of the, the closest partners in, in Europe. Uh, it's uh, The partnership is on the level where um, China and Serbia are having also um, joint uh, military police exercises, uh, so uh, Chinese uh, investment in Serbian infrastructure is massive. Uh, there are very close relationships uh, on, on also on the propagandistic level. Uh, the Chinese um, president is being called Brother Xi mm-hmm. in yes. Serbia, so um, that that shows that in 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 let's say in realpolitik uh, for Serbia. China is really the main um, uh, external partner and not Russia. And let, let's talk about China's general influence in the Western Balkans. The last 10 years, China was involved, as you know, in major infrastructure projects across the region. For example, Montenegro borrowed nearly $1 billion from the Chinese state-owned Export-Import Bank in 2014 to fund the construction of the country's first highway, a prestige project for the Montenegrin government. They also had problems to service the debt in 2019. Then another example is Croatia, where the government granted a tender for the construction of the Pelješac Bridge, a massive project worth some 100, uh, four, I think it was 430 million euro uh, to the Chinese state-owned Road and Bridge Corporation. The issue with this is uh, that the EU subsidizes 85% of the project's costs. So how do you assess China's involvement in such projects? Should the EU allow this? I mean, isn't China also trying to gain a geopolitical foothold in the Western Balkans through such projects? At the moment, I still don't really see that much of the geopolitical element, but more geoeconomic element. Mm. <coughs> so there are different uh, interests that China has. On the one hand, uh, given uh, that uh, basically Germany and the EU was forcing uh, Greece to sell uh, their main uh, port, Piraeus, um, to, in that case, a Chinese state company. Uh, China has uh, increased the capacities of uh, the port of Piraeus massively. It's by now the most important container port in the Mediterranean. It is an important uh, way for China to export its good to the center of Europe, to go via Piraeus, and hence also the um, uh, in the Chinese infrastructure investment, f- particularly in Serbia, but not only in Serbia, uh, in order to connect that port, uh, for instance, via rail and road infrastructure to, to the center of Europe. Uh, they are really having their market to sell their goods. So um, in that sense, uh, there is this geoeconomic element. It's also an, uh, a way, uh, for instance, if you speak about the, the bridge, the Pelješac bridge in Croatia, to basically export unemployment from China, the, the high uh, overcapacities of steel production, uh, and, and, and basically these are also Chinese workers that are working on those construction sites. So uh, it's, it's, it's in a way also a purely uh, 
mercantilistic interest of China to do so. And until recently, the, the EU was uh, more interested in efficiency than in, in security issues. And hence, uh, the, the, the fact that it allowed a Chinese state company to uh, be part of the tender in, in Croatia. So you don't think that the European Union will do like anything to stop uh, Chinese investment projects in, in, in the Western Balkans? Well, they will, they will, uh, or to hinder them. They will try to, to check whether a company receives massive state subsidies uh, or not, and, and hence there will be some refinement of, of tendering processes. State subsidies like at the Pelishots Bridge with 85%. Like, like at the Pelishots mm -hmm. Bridge, where, I mean, these Chinese state companies are obviously uh, not, uh, not um, doing this at, at market prices. Of course, yeah, that's true. Um, Now, let's look forward a bit into the future uh, and discuss the prospects of the region. Um, unfortunately, um, Western Balkan countries such as Bosnia, Herzegovina, as well as Croatia, until this day suffer from a, from a brain drain and a negative demography. Um, for example, since 2013, nearly half a million Bosnians left Bosnia, Herzegovina. And the outcome of Croatia's 2021 census was also, well, devastating. Um, the country's population contracted by some 400,000 people over the last 10 years. So how do you view those demographic trends? Well, it's, it's very difficult for the whole region. And this is nothing new in a way. Uh, basically, outward migration on a massive scale um, goes back to the 1970s. And probably it, it really also uh, was the case, so maybe even in the Roman Empire. <laughs> Um, yeah. But uh, the, the, what, what you really see now is also the effects of decades of uh, outward migration of the young ones. Mm. So the aging of the society is massively increasing. So apart from the fact that the population is shrinking, particularly the population in the working age uh, is, is shrinking massively. And this will continue, obviously, over the next decades. Um, what to do? Um, Yeah, how to counter those how to counter these trends? trends. Very yeah. difficult to do so. Um, talking to people who who emigrate <coughs> provides you the information that they are not doing this only for for the wage differentials, which are still massive, obviously. Um, but they are not even doing it for themselves. But they are argue that they are doing it for their kids. They want their kids to live in a country that has a proper healthcare system. Uh, that uh, where the education is good, where you have, for instance, green spaces in the cities, uh, where you have recreational facilities, and so on and so on. So it's a full package, and I would, I would say that these countries need to think uh, about, I would call them policies of the good life, and this is particularly probably what the bigger cities in these countries um, should perform. So I think municipalities need to to get enough money to invest into kindergartens, uh, to improve uh, the hospitals, uh, to, to, for instance, uh, step up uh, housing policies for the young families particularly. Uh, I like this very much. Uh, uh, the, the Twitter account of, of Eurostat, uh, they, are, they uh, have these uh, funny um, uh, infographics mm -hmm. and one of the most successful ones is the one where they show the average age when young people leave their family's home. And uh, you see, for instance, uh, Denmark on, on top of yeah. these statistics with, 
with an average of 17 years. Yeah. And uh, at the other end of the statistics, because this is only about EU member countries, is Croatia with, I think, ar around 33 years on average. Yeah. So now as a half a Croatian, I also left uh, my family home fairly late. So I think there might be some cultural element as well. But in essence, this is about uh, material problems mm -hmm. of not mm -hmm. being able to finance an own household um, as, as a young person. And uh, I assume, uh, without knowing the statistics in detail, that in the Western Balkans it will be fairly similar to the case in Croatia, yeah. if not even yeah. worse. So uh, I think housing policy is an important cornerstone. I mean, you talked about Croatia now, yeah? because I think Croatia, the labor situation, the labor market in Croatia is really fascinating regarding tourism sector. A large, I mean, a large portion of Croatia's GDP is actually in the tourism sector, 20 to 25 percent of GDP. Um, do you think that the diversification of the labor sector could also counter those trends? Because I have many friends that, that you know, studied you know, academics and they really struggle to find uh, sustainable employment in Croatia, which is why they say, you know, why should I stay in Croatia? I don't have any uh, opportunities. Well, uh, I mean, uh, it is true that uh, uh, the matching of, of, of skills and, and jobs is also not ideal. and. Uh, Overall, also given these demographic trends, uh, the, the, the whole region will need to think also about not only keeping, uh, so to speak, human capital in the country, mm -hmm. but also attracting new one. Um, and, and again, policies of good life, I think, would, would be helpful also for that. But the countries need to think about immigration policies. Um, de facto, there is immigration um, of, of workers in in the low skill uh, segment already in Croatia, both in tourism as well as in construction, you see mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. from all over the world. I think uh, I, I heard only recently that I think people from Nepal are, yes, uh, yes, are second yeah, yeah. Uh, in in uh, in um, acquiring work permissions, work permissions in Croatia. Yeah, this is really interesting. Actually, an interesting yes, development. Yes, yes. So. When we are talking about countering those demographic trends, um, I think the EU expansion is a major factor. Yeah. Um, is the inclusion of the entire Western Balkan region into, e into the EU in, in the near future something that, that can be regarded as realistic? I mean, currently, EU expansion is at an impasse with Bulgaria blocking North Macedonia's EU accession. Um, what do you think? Well, <coughs> it's not realistic, but I think it would be the right solution uh, I think even uh, with countries such as Bosnia Herzegovina, that take all the countries, uh, take all the countries into the EU. These countries are hardly existing anymore. Uh, de facto, the people of the region, anyway, will join the EU. The question is whether the territory will join or not. Yeah, mm -hmm. so the the mm -hmm. people are, are going into the EU and becoming uh, citizens of the European Union. That is what they think, and, and probably they rightly think so. The the guarantee for a better life. So. Um, uh, from the Vienna Institute for International Economic Studies, we did a, a study together with the Bertelsmann Stiftung, uh, where we basically suggested uh, a plan B, so to speak. Uh, let the countries at least join all the economically important programs of the European Union, uh, most importantly, uh, the common market, to really have full access to this big market, and also uh, this uh, should include complete access to EU transfers because uh, f for at least two reasons. On the one hand, for the EU, 
this region in economic terms is is quantité uh, négligeable. We are mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about a joint Western Balkan GDP, which is in the size of uh, Slovakian uh, GDP or half of Greek GDP. So, yeah. especially because of COVID nineteen pandemic, you know, and not only the this, just just because also of, of this uh, mass immigration that yes. we were talking just yeah. about also the, mm-hmm. the the low level of economic activity. So in economic terms, this is nothing for the European Union. Uh, currently, uh, as pre-accession support in terms of transfers, the Union um, uh, supports the, the region with about 1% of GDP, yeah, of local GDP. Uh, while, yeah. uh, for instance, uh, the, the last round of, of EU accession countries they receive transfers uh, in the tune of uh, two, three, four, up to five percent of GDP uh, per annum. Uh, so if that would be also granted to the Western Balkans, that could make a big difference also, particularly in terms of infrastructure and, and many of the other things we were talking about before. So I think these two elements, uh, access to EU transfers, uh, access to the EU market, this would be crucial. Okay, so you basically say that EU investments, more EU investments into the Western Balkans to passively integrate them into the European Union could be a solution. Uh, yeah, to if, if there is no political will to have a political accession at this point in time, which, I mean, I can understand, there are a number of reasons why you don't want to do it. And, and say you, you should, well, you yeah, <laughs> say one. Uh, <laughs> democratic deficits, yeah. obviously, yeah, the, the, the corruption, yeah, but I think these are to a large extent dependent variables, depending on the overall economic situation of the country. Is the country able to pay um, uh, the, the doctors in the hospital a proper wage or is does he feel the need to ask for uh, for uh, uh, money from from his patients mm-hmm. uh, outright, you know. So mm-hmm. the, I think with an increase of productivity, with an increase of the wage level uh, overall, you will also have an improvement in the institutions. Okay, great. Well, on this note, Mario, I think we can wrap up our discussion. Um, it was a true pleasure having you today as our guest. I mean, we talked about multiple really complex issues regarding the Western Balkans, and your knowledge about the region is truly impressive. So. I mean, thank you very much for, for sharing your valuable insights with us today. Thank you, Ben. That was a really interesting talk. I, I really liked how you were able to break down these very complex issues in a very informative way. Uh, I mean, I sure learned a lot. Uh, and with such a grim topic, I especially liked how you were able to talk about the prospects for improving the future of the Western Balkans as well. Yeah, it, it was a true pleasure having Mario Holzner as guest. Um, his knowledge about the Western Balkans is truly astonishing. Yeah, I, I totally uh, agree. I hope you listeners also uh, learned something. I sure did. It was a pleasure having this as the last episode of the semester. Uh, but don't be afraid, dear listeners. We will be back in October with more interesting talks and discussions about the things we and you care about. And with that, we want to thank all of our listeners who have joined us for our first season and invite you to stay tuned for more Doctorate coming next semester. Again, thank you to our guest, Mario Holzner. This episode was produced by Bernd Christoph Ström, Maximilian Brockhaus, Martin Pokorny, Amara Ubo, and me, Rasmus Waldemann. Editing and everything technical by Martin Pokorny and today's host, Bernd Christoph Ström. Doctorate is brought to you by the Doctoral School of Historical and Cultural Studies and the Vienna Doctoral School of Social Sciences. It is created and produced by the School Fellows. <laughs>